Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. I just want to give a quick introduction here. Uh, uh, Christina's going to lead us in our study, our reading. You're not going to lead us in our study, don't worry. You're going to lead us in our reading here in chapter 1, 15 through 23. We are working our way through the book of Ephesians, if you haven't caught that yet, and uh, in this series, we're exploring what a call to faithfulness to remain in Christ looks like and in so many different ways, and uh, I'm super excited this morning to have my good friend Nate Gallagher is going to be here sharing God's word with us, and so um, after uh, Christina reads, he'll be up here sharing with you guys, and so uh, Christine, why don't you take it from here? Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all, principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. You can grab your seat. Well, welcome again to church. If this is your first time, um, we're happy that you're with us. My name's Nate, like Pastor Andrew said, from Vero Beach, uh, Calvary Chapel, Vero Beach, and uh, happy to be with you guys. It's always an honor. And um, let's pray, and then we'll sort of unpack what we just read. Father, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you for your love, and um, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be here. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to meet us when we gather. Lord, you are faithful to answer our prayer when we ask for more of your spirit. And so we're asking for more today. And uh, Lord, as we, as we just read, God, we pray that our, um, our understanding, God, would be enlightened, that we would see you clearly. And as we unpack this scripture, God, would you um, help us to not just understand it? Lord, we don't want to just learn today. God, we want to encounter you in a real way. So we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and uh, the, the, we've, we're, we're calling it to the faithful ones. And uh, the letter to the Ephesians has been called the queen of the epistles or the crown of Paulinism. And it covers really the entire landscape of the Christian experience in just a few short chapters. That's one of the beautiful things about it. If you're anything like me, ADD a little bit, like you need short, to the point, and this is the, the letter to the Ephesians. It gives us a real clear um, break. It's kind of um, who we are in Christ or really what Christ has done for us, and then it transitions about halfway through the letter to give us practical, okay, now what does that look like in everyday life? And so the Apostle Paul covers this huge landscape of walking with Jesus, and it's unique because unlike most of Paul's letters, he isn't addressing a specific problem. Um, he's simply writing to faithful followers of Jesus to encourage them in their faithfulness. 
So he's not, he's not dealing with problems. He not, he's not addressing issues. He's not correcting them. He's just saying, hey, you're, you're walking with God. Keep walking with God. And there's something so sweet about that simple reminder. And for many of us, we're here today, and we're, we've been coming to church for a long time. Like, we've been walking with God for a long time. And if I could just encourage you, even before we jump in, just to keep going, right, to continue to be faithful. Um, and for some of us, this is, this is new for us. We, we just started walking with Jesus, or, or we've just returned back to church. And there's something to just showing up, right, to just keep being faithful and allowing God and his word to transform us. And in our text today, we see Paul's first prayer to the church in Ephesus. In this short letter, we actually see two prayers that he prays. One here at the end of chapter one, and then again in chapter three. And so in these six chapters, he prays twice for them. Um, But we don't just hear that he is praying for them. We We get insight into what he's praying for them. Uh, let's begin again in verse 15, and we're just going to kind of move through this chapter or this section line by line. But it says, verse 15, Therefore I, Paul, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So we're told that the faithfulness of the Ephesian church has caused ceaseless thanksgiving from Paul and specific prayers. He says, I have not ceased to give thanks for you, and I'm praying specifically for you. I think it's always a joy when someone tells you that they've been praying for you, isn't it? Hey, I've been praying for you. Now, I always ask, well, what have you been praying for me? Because I think it's important (laughs) Like, I want to make sure that we're praying the same thing. Sometimes I've heard prayers like, I don't know if I agree with that, um, in the sense of like, I don't know if I want that in my life. Just recently, I, I asked a friend of mine um, to pray for me, and he prayed a very specific thing. He prayed that, uh, that God would, well, actually, I'm not going to go into the details, but whatever the case, he, he prayed it, and I literally, we said amen, and like f- five minutes later, what he prayed for came about in like the, he basically prayed that seasons, like things would be difficult for me and that I would learn in those difficulties to trust God. And I, I was like, thanks, man. And we like walked out and then it happened. And I was like, well, you need to be more like just a little clearer maybe next time when you pray. Anyways, sometimes like we need to know, okay, what are you praying for me? What specifically? And so Paul tells us, Hey, I'm, I'm praying for you, and then he prays for them. We get insight. We see exactly what he's praying for them. Now, if I heard that Paul was praying for me, I, one, I'd be thrilled, um, and I think I would have some expectation for what he's praying, especially given the reputation um, and experience Paul had specifically in Ephesus. Um, when Paul was in Ephesus, we read about it in the book of Acts, we're told that God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. That that phrase is, is used in, in the book of Acts. That God used, uh, or God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. Now, by definition, a miracle is unusual. Amen? Because if it wasn't unusual, it wouldn't be a miracle. It'd be normal. Right? The fact that it's a miracle makes it go, huh, that's interesting. But, the, but Luke, the author of Acts, says specifically, it was miraculous but it was also like kind of strange. 
And then he describes it. He says, so much so that people would take handkerchiefs and aprons from the body of Paul, they would lay it on the sick, and people would get healed. Like, well, that's not normal, right? Like, if you take a Kleenex and you touch somebody else with it, they don't get unsick, <laughs> they get sick, right? <laughs> And we're told that God worked unusual miracles. Not only that, in the time that Paul spent in Ephesus, we're also told that this great revival happened. In the sense that people were getting saved so much so that they were taking some of the, the practices, specifically witchcraft and sorcery that was common in Ephesus at the time. They were taking those practices, the books and the things like that, and they were burning them, basically saying, we're done with this old lifestyle and we're going to follow after Jesus. So there's these mighty miracles, unusual miracles happening in the church or in Ephesus, and then this great revival is taking place. People are being saved. They're leaving their old way of life. They're choosing to follow after Jesus. And we're told now, the Apostle Paul, the one that was sort of the, the one that brought the gospel here, is now praying for them. Now, I would go, yes, I want you to pray for me. Uh, maybe I want you to pray a miracle for me. God, would you, uh, Paul, would you pray that God would heal me or that God would uh, maybe use me in the same way? And yet we're told kind of a, uh, maybe a, a different thing than you would expect from Paul's prayer for them. So Paul prays for them, and maybe there was an expectation or a thought that from the people that, would, that Paul would be praying maybe for miracles or for revival or a more tangible expression of God's spirit. But instead, Paul doesn't pray for miracles. He doesn't pray for a more visible manifestation of the spirit. He doesn't pray for their effectiveness in ministry. Let's look specifically at what he prays. Verse 17. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you my prayers. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but I think it's important that we note that some things that God does in our life is a means to an end, not the end. And what I mean by that is the end, in most cases, is more Jesus in our life. The end is the finished work on the day of Christ Jesus. The end is God is actually bringing us somewhere. And I think it's important to note that miracles are often a means to an end in our life. That miracles is not the end in our life. Does that make sense? Like God's primary purpose or primary thing that he's doing in your life is not miracles, because miracles is a means to an end. It's more Jesus in our life. And in the same way, not doing miracles is a means to an end in our life. For some people, the, the process of getting more Jesus in their life or that Christ would be formed in them or they, they, they would experience more God in their life is the miraculous. Maybe it's miraculous healing. Maybe it's miraculous open doors. Maybe it's miraculous clarity or some sort of like you would say, man, God moved in a miraculous way in my life. And this has caused me really more Jesus in my life. But in the same way, for some people, the more Jesus in their life is caused not by the miraculous, but the lack thereof. 
Because the miraculous, what God does oftentimes is a means to an end to get us to him. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And I think sometimes we, we think, okay, I need a miracle in my life, or I need this in my life. And, and what God wants is you actually need more of him in your life. And so miracles or, or not having miracles is a means to an end. And I would say the same thing. Effectiveness in ministry is a means to an end. For example, like me teaching on stage doesn't mean I've arrived at some sort of spiritual destination, but rather it means that part of the work of sanctification in my life specifically, like part of the way that God is putting more or forming more Christ in me is by using sort of this platform or this, this ministry to grow more Christ in me. Are you with me? And so sometimes we have to recognize that, that, that in the same way, whether it's God using you or, or God not giving clarity in the sense of what he's calling you to, you to do in a specific moment is a means to an end. So all of that to say, we'll talk about Paul's prayer in a moment, but all of that to say Paul's prayer is not one of miracles and healing or or revival or effectiveness, but rather of knowledge and wisdom of God. That, in other words, we could say that Paul's prayer for them is that Christ would be formed more in their life, that God would open up their eyes to see what he's doing already in their life. And so Paul prays for them, and he prays for specific things that we're going to talk about, for the faithful ones, about the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The first thing that he prays, he says, I pray that, the, that, that you would be enlightened, that you would understand, point number one, that you would know him. His prayer is that they would know him. Look at verse 16. He says, I'm making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, dot, dot, dot. We'll pick up in the middle of that sentence in a moment. But he prays really uh, that we would know him. And he tells us sort of ways that we do know him. The first way that we know God or that we would understand who he is is through revelation. Through revelation. We would know and understand God through his revelation. You know, we live in a strange, in a strange era and a strange world, not of self-discovery, um, but of self-defining. We live in a world where people don't necessarily discover who they are. They define who they are. Uh, th this shows itself, I think, in all sorts of ways, from how people identify to what people believe and obey. It's not uh, a discovery. It's defining. And this sort of perspective can lead itself to how we view God and how we then know God. Let me put it like this. God is not to be defined by us. He is to be discovered by us. God is not to be defined by us. He's to be discovered by us. And listen, we discover God through his self-revelation. We discover who God is based upon what he's revealed to us about himself. Our job is not to define God. Our job is not to say, do you know what? I think this is what God is like based upon whether it's my experiences or my feelings or my, my limited understanding or things like that. Our job is not to define God. 
Our job is to discover who he is and to learn where we discover him from. We know God, we see God, and we understand God based upon what he's revealed to us about himself. And Paul's prayer is that they would understand God. And I would also say that they would understand where to look for him. To speak uh, practically, the primary place we discover God is through his word. Right? Where, has the, where has he revealed himself to us? Where do we see who he is and what he's like? Where do we see his character? Where do we learn his name? Where do we see his heart for people? Where do we understand what he's actively doing right now in South Florida and, on, and in the globe? Like, Where do we see what God's doing? Well, we, we understand who he is and what he's doing based upon his, his word and what he's revealed to us. This is where we see his character and his actions, his plans, his will for our lives and his will for the world. But Paul's prayer is not that they would have an intellectual knowledge of God, but that they would have an experiential knowledge of him. The word know that he uses, it literally means to see or to perceive with the eyes. Or in other words, to put it like to see for yourself. It's kind of the idea. My prayer for you is that you would see for yourself who God is. That you personally, individually, would learn who God is and what he's like. And we know him through his revelation, but we also know him through experience. Experiencing who he is. This is the difference, I think, between knowing about God and knowing God. Right? I'm sure many of us, we, we know about a lot of people. Right? Like, I go on IMDb all the time. Like, I'm watching a movie, and I'm like, who is that person? I've seen them from something. I, like, pull up IMDb. I'm like, oh, that's what they're from. And we, like, learn information. Like, my family, we're big Dodger fans. We know all about the Dodgers. And, like, the Cody Bellinger went to the Cubs. And, like, oh, we all, always the trades and all of these things. We, we know about people. But it's different than knowing someone personally, right? And so Paul's prayer, I don't want you to know about God. I don't want you to have, like, God's stats. Like, I don't need you to know, like, okay, this in the year, blah, blah, blah. He did blankety blank. And now he's, like, I don't need you to know about God. His prayer is that you would know him personally and intimately. It's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. In John chapter 8, there's an interesting, the whole chapter in John 8 is is interesting between Jesus. He's having a discussion with some of the Pharisees and the Jews. And and the whole chapter can be summarized basically as Jesus' self-witness and self-revelation. That Jesus is bearing witness of himself to the people he's talking to. And he's revealing to them very clearly who he is. And it sort of comes to a conclusion and to a head at the end of John chapter 8. And they're having this dialogue back and forth about Abraham and about Jesus. And and Jesus makes a claim that that Abraham was pleased to see Jesus' day. And then they scratch their head and they're like, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that Abraham knew you? or knew of you. And then Jesus makes a statement where he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's making a profound, clear uh, claim about who he was. But in the midst of that, we see, uh, I think, an interesting thing about about Jesus, uh, how we know him through experience. Listen to John 8, verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall, you, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I, I just kind of want to practically give us some, some from this verse, uh, a couple of ways that we can know Jesus experientially. In, in other words, that we can know him personally. The first thing that, that's noted, I think, in this verse is that we need to believe. Jesus mentions that these are disciples that believe in him. Jesus is speaking to them, and he's talking about a, a deeper experience as believers. And belief, I think when we use it in, in the church world, it speaks of primarily of salvation, right? We believe in Jesus. We place faith in him and what he's done, and that allows us to have salvation, relationship with God, restored back into relationship with him. We're saved through faith in Jesus. But belief also speaks of direction, meaning we trust God with our lives. We allow God's word and his ways to shape how we live. And we experience Jesus in an intimate way through belief, through trusting who he is, trusting what his word says, and trusting what he's doing in our lives. That you can experience God in a deeper way, in a real way, in a personal way, as you choose daily to trust in him. But he also tells us in this verse, not only do we need to believe, but we also need to abide this is a beautiful word, right? John 15, Jesus goes in depth about this idea of abiding. And Jesus says we must abide and obey his word, and that leads to freedom. Because as we abide and obey, we see more clearly who God is, what he's doing, which allows for us to experience true freedom in Christ. Jesus would say in a few places the fruit of abiding in him or remaining in him, that there is actually God produces something in our lives as we abide in him, as we know him, as we experience him. In this particular text, he says one of the fruits of abiding or knowing the truth is freedom. Is freedom. In fact, at the end of that section in John 8, he makes the powerful statement, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus is saying the byproduct of abiding in him, the byproduct of knowing him, the byproduct of, of experiencing him in a deep way is freedom in our lives. In other words, the more you know and trust Jesus, who is truth, the more you can live free. I think our, our, our sort of modern idea of freedom is the absence of restraints, right? It's the ability to do whatever I want with nothing standing in my way. And Jesus actually says that that really isn't freedom because it isn't actually real. <laughs> All freedom is actually involuntary obedience to something. All freedom is voluntary obedience to something. Dr. Tim, Tim Keller said it like this, quote, Freedom is choosing the more liberating restraints over the less liberating restraints. Listen, this is, this is the whole point I'm trying to make. As we abide in Jesus, we experience more of Jesus actively at work in our lives. And we can experience true freedom as we follow him. Paul's prayer is that we would not just know about God, but that we would know him personally. And we know him personally as we trust him, 
and as we abide in him, as we remain in him, and as we allow him to produce the things he wants to produce in our lives. And then the third thing I would say about, about knowing him personally or, or, or how we know him in a deeper way is by following him. Right? Jesus says if we abide in him, we are his disciples. Jesus calls us into discipleship or following him. And discipleship to Jesus is not a lesson that you learn, but a life that you live. Where we allow him to lead, direct, guide, and shape our lives in every way. And we do this over and over again as he continues to lead us out of darkness and into light. Part of following Jesus is over and over he leads us out of darkness into light. Out of selfishness and into generosity. Out of bitterness and into forgiveness. Out of impulse and into patience. Out of judgment and into love. Out of suffering and into contentment. Out of sorrow and into joy. Over and over again, we follow Jesus and we allow him to lead us out of darkness and into light. And Paul's prayer, again, is that we would know him. That we would know him through revelation, what he's revealed to us, and through experience. As we trust, as we abide, and as we follow. Now, the second thing that Paul prays, back to Ephesians 1, he says that we would not only know him, not just know about him, but know him personally, but secondly, we would know hope. Look at verse 18 where we sort of left off. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Hope is often thought of as maybe wishful thinking or unfulfilled desire, right? I hope that this would happen. And biblical hope is, is really different. It, it speaks of assurance or an expectation. An expectation is a different idea, at least in our mind, than hope is, right? If we say, I hope this happens, it paints one picture. If, we're say, if we say, I'm expecting this to happen, it paints a different picture, right? The expectation is like, it's happening. It's just a matter of when or how. And even biblically, we can think of our hope merely as, as like a distant far off, one day kind of reality. Like our hope will be experienced only in heaven. Like one day we will have hope. Now, we obviously have the hope of eternity. We have the promise that a day is coming where Jesus will renew and restore all things. He will wipe away every tear and we will experience the fullness of his glory. And listen to me, this is an expectation this is not wishful thinking. This is not like I hope God remembers our planet and comes back to it. I had that thought recently. I'm like, there's a, what if he, what if he was just forgot about this one? Like, oh yeah, planet Earth. There's, God's not like that, right? This is, this is where he's actively involved. This is what he's doing. And we have a, an expectation that he's going to renew and restore and make right all broken things. That is a promise from God. But listen, Paul's understanding of hope is not just getting to heaven, but actually bringing heaven here. That's Paul's understanding of hope. Jesus called it the renewal of all things in Matthew 19, or his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul's prayer is that we would know hope. Listen, hope as an assurance of what God is actively and currently doing rooted in his promises. Hope is an assurance of what God is actively and currently doing rooted in his promises. 
but we would know hope. He says that we would know hope by accepting really what we're called to do and walking in it. He doesn't pray, notice that we would, uh, 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 that we would have a call from God. He prays that we would, we would know what God is doing in our life. Let's read it again. Our eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that you would know what is the hope of his calling. He doesn't pray that we would have a call from God. In other words, he's not praying, God, I pray that you would use their life in some way or another. Or I pray that God would somehow redeem the mess that you've created with your life for his good. He prays that they would know what God has called you to do. He will later tell us in, in the book that we would walk, he prayed that we would walk worthy of the call that God's placed on our life. But this prayer is that you would understand that God has a call on our life and that, he is, that we are to participate in bringing his hope into the world. His prayer is that, that you would know hope, not some far off wishful thinking, but you would know it here and now and that you would recognize that God is actually calling you to participate in what he's actively doing in the world. That you would know hope. All right, the third thing, are you guys still with me? Is this making sense? All right, number three, his prayer is not only that they would know him and know hope, but third, that they would know his inheritance. Know his inheritance. Verse 18 again, he says, that you would know what the hope of his calling is and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, earlier in the chapter, and Pastor Andrew would have taught on it last week, Paul tells us what our inheritance is. And in chapter 1, he tells us that all the treasure we have in Christ, that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we're chosen before the foundation of the world, that we're redeemed through the blood of Christ, that we're adopted into the family of God, becoming a joint heir with Christ, and that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. All of this is our inheritance in Christ Jesus. You are blessed. You are chosen. You are redeemed. You are adopted. You are sealed. This is our inheritance in Christ. But here, Paul doesn't pray that we would know our inheritance. He prays that we would know God's inheritance. In other words, through the union of God and man because of Christ, God gets an inheritance. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God's inheritance through that union, through, through what Jesus has done on the cross, reconciling us to himself, that through that union, we are his inheritance. That's the promise of Scripture. When he says, I pray that you would know his inheritance, he's saying, I, would, I want you to understand that you are God's inheritance. Hebrew Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross, and that we are his joy. We are the recipients of his love. We are the results of his plans. Paul's prayer is that we would intellectually understand that we are God's inheritance. My prayer for you is that you would understand that you are God's inheritance. And by knowing that, it would reveal to us the great love and affection that God has toward us. Listen to me. Paul is praying for the, the church in Ephesus and the same thing for us, that you would know, you as an individual, I'm not talking to a room, I want to talk to you for a moment, that you as an individual are God's inheritance, right? That the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, 
enduring the cross was for you. It was for me. Right? We are God's inheritance. And just recognizing that, just going, okay, I'm God's inheritance would allow the love of God and the, the compassion and the mercy of God to really overwhelm our hearts and minds. I am God's inheritance. <laughs> that the cross, despising the shame, at the other side of that, through the resurrection, was me, it was you. And so his prayer for them is that I want you to understand that you are God's inheritance, but I want to, you to let that understanding to cause you to feel the great love and affection that God has for you. And then the final thing he prays is that we would know his power. Look at verse 19. He says, uh, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Now, Paul tells us where God's power has been working. And now he tells us where it's currently working. Look at verse 20. This is where God's power has been working. He says, which, God's power, the power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so he says that God's power worked in raising Christ from the dead. His power worked in seating him at the right hand of the, of the Father, giving him far greater power than any principality or power in heaven or on earth. His power worked in putting all things under his feet. In other words, all things are subject to Jesus and his word. His power worked in making him the head of the church. Right? He says this is where God's powers work. And now he says that same power is at work somewhere else. That same power, he says, is now at work toward you. The same power that did all of that is now working toward us. Now, I want you to notice that word toward. <laughs> it's a, a weird word to say. The more I say it, the harder it is to say. Um, but it carries a few ideas. When he says God's power is working towards you, the, the first idea it carries uh, uh, is into. That God's power is working into you. God is working his power into us. Paul would say in his letter to the Romans that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and it is giving life to your mortal bodies. And that whole section is about walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. The idea is that God is working his power into us so that we would have power to have victory over sin. God is at work. His power is working towards you. It's working into you so that you could have power, victory over sin. So that we would have power to remain in him. That we would have power to trust in him. God's power is working his character into us. Right? So actively, he says the same power that did all of this, raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, made him the head over the church, all of these things, that same power is now working into you. That Christ would be formed in you. That you would have victory over the things that you're struggling with. That you would have the, the confidence to remain in what God is calling you to. He's working into you. But that word toward you, it also means among. 
It's a complex word. It means that he's, God's power is working into you, but God's power is also working among you. God is working. <laughs> to quote the song, I think we often sing that, sing that even when we don't see it, God is working. One problem I, I, I find myself facing is being unaware of what God is doing when he's doing it. Right? I think sometimes we can just, we can, it's unclear to us. And, and that the assumption, because it's unclear to us, is that he isn't working. Right? God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Well, don't you see me struggling? Don't you know what I'm walking through? Don't you care about me? Why aren't you doing anything about it? But I think the problem is not that he isn't working. is that we're unaware of what he's doing. And so his prayer is that, that you would know that God's power is at work among you. And sometimes we're unaware of it because we're uninvolved in it. We're not submitted to what God is currently doing. So he's praying that God would work into you. He's praying that God would work among you. And then the third idea is that God would work for you. That's that word. That God's power would be at work for you. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Isaiah 43 says it like this. I was struck by this verse this week. It says, fear not, God speaking, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name and your mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were previous in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. The promise throughout this verse is, is not that difficulty won't come. <laughs> right? A lot of it is like, you can look at it and be like, well, you're drowning. You're walking in fire, right? There's like enemies attacking. The promise is not the absence of those things, right? The, the promise is God's with you. God's power is working for us. And here's the key. We must learn to lean and rely on the strength that he provides. Growing up, um, my, we would wakeboard all the time. We in the Indian River, we would like wakeboard and my aunt would ski and things like that. And I remember being a kid and learning how to wakeboard. And uh, my aunt is, she's, she's awesome. She's very loud and intense. And um, I remember when we were learning to wakeboard, she had uh, a little jingle that she would yell from the back of the boat. And it would be knees to the chest, let the boat do the rest. She would scream this from the back. And basically she was saying like, you hold on to the rope, you get in a nice bald, tucked form, and the boat's going to pull you up. The boat is going to actually be the one that lifts you out of the water. And there's a tendency to, like, fight the boat and try to do it yourself. And what happens is people, like, lean too far back or they lean too far forward and they fall, they, they fall over. And so she would scream as the boat started going, knees to the chest, let the boat do the rest. And we'd be like, it's, like, ingrained. In, like, I don't think I've heard her say that since I was, like, eight years old. And it's still, like, burned in my brain. But there's this, this idea that there's, there's actually a power working for you. 
There's actually a, a strength that's going to pull you up out of the water so that you can do what you want to do. <laughs> and yet so often, it's so easy for us to fight that strength, to fight that power. And what Paul is praying is that you would lean into the power of God, that you would rely on the power of God, that you would know what the power is that is working for you. His prayer is that we would would see God at work in our life and we'd become more aware of what he's doing in our life. We must learn to rely, to lean in to the strength that God provides. Paul's prayer is that we would know God, but that it would be an experiential and revealed knowledge of him, not an informational knowledge of him. And his prayer is not that we would have these things, his prayer, this whole section is not that, God, that we would get these things from God, but rather that we would know that we do have them. Right? His prayer is not, I, I don't pray that you would, that you would like get an inheritance or that, you would, that, that God would make you his inheritance. His prayer is not, man, I hope that God gives you some of his power. I really hope that you understand that, or I hope that God would give you a call on your life. I really pray that there there be some hope for you. That's not his prayer. His prayer is that all of these things are available. All of these things are yours. So my prayer for you is that your, your understanding, your awareness of them, that your eyes would be enlightened to the reality that these things are yours in Christ Jesus. And sometimes once we realize what we have and what we have access to, it changes our perspective on how we deal with things. Because we're not going through life like, man, I really hope God's power is somewhere. Like, man, I really hope God would show up. No, the power is available to you you if you lean on what he's doing. His prayer is not that we would have these things, but that we know that we do have them. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I just want to close kind of with a a short just kind of testimony of some of the things that God's doing at at our church um, at Calvary and Vero. And uh, we've had, uh, our church is a larger church, and we have four services over the weekend. We do three on Sunday morning and one on Saturday night. And for years, we've done Saturday nights, and Saturday nights have been like the like, what are we doing with Saturday nights? That's kind of like my thought. I'm like, why are we doing this? It's like, like, I've been like the guy like, let's have just an extra day off. We really don't need Saturday nights. And I remember one time we went into like a, a pastor's meeting and I had like this big pitch of like, we should kill Saturday nights. And I had a great plan of like how I was going to get everybody on board. And I thought for sure, like everyone... Saturday, after this meeting, it's going to be brilliant. Everyone's going to be like, Nate, you're a genius. No more Saturday nights. That's what I was thinking. And I went into the meeting and basically was like left alone. Everyone's like, no, we don't agree with you at all. And I was like, are you kidding me? Well, in that meeting, it kind of like, it, it, it kind of causes us to go, okay, what, what is God doing on Saturday nights? And, and we sort of had this, we just decided we're going to kind of switch up how we do the service. And it's going to be kind of more of what we call like a believer service. So we're going to have worship and a message, but then we're going to have an extended time of just waiting on God and just praying and let the, the, the body minister to itself sort of in love and uh, allowing the, the gifts of the Spirit to be at work and things like that. And so we, we started doing that maybe six or eight months ago. And I kid you not, it, it, in, in a matter of weeks, 
after we started doing Saturday nights like this. We heard testimonies of, of uh, people being healed. We heard testimonies of, of marriages being restored. We heard testimonies of, of people sensing and experiencing a call of God on their life and, and stepping into that call. And, and radically, something that felt very like just how we do it because we've always done it. All of a sudden, there was new life, and we saw God just doing radical things. But my point in bringing that up is not to say that, like, God wasn't doing something or that all of a sudden we, like, tapped into, okay, you found God's power. You found, like, you were just looking in the wrong no, What it was is we basically just made ourselves available to what God always does. And it was just like, okay, we're just going to lean into who he is, what he promises, and what has been made available to us. My whole point in saying that is, is Paul's prayer for you, Paul's prayer for me, is that we would know what we already have access to in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you. I pray that you, that you would be enlightened, that you would be aware of, that your eyes would be open to who he is based upon what he's revealed to us about himself and through experiencing him and being in his presence, that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what he's actively doing in our world today and how you can participate in that, what you would know that his inheritance is you and that would overwhelm you with love and joy and the presence of God and that you would know the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father and made him the power and the head over all things, that that power is working towards you and in you and among you and for you. And that you would lean into who God is and who he's always been. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This isn't new, right? This is who he's always been. And that you would lean into what he's made available in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your great love for us. Lord, I'm struck this morning, even just talking about it, the fact that we are your inheritance. And it's easy for us to, at least for myself, to just kind of go through my mind, all of my mess and all of my struggles and, and be like, almost like, I'm sorry that this is what you get. But Lord, we thank you for your grace, your compassion your love for us. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would lean into what you've made available for us. Specifically, God, I want to pray for that power that's available. The power through your spirit to walk with you, to live a life worthy of you, to, experiences your, to experience your, your riches and your goodness and your grace in our life and to walk in, in confidence in our purpose and in, in clarity about who we are and who you've called us to be. And so, Lord, I pray for, for that power this morning to be at work in our lives. Lord, that you would, you would reveal yourself and you would empower us to be the people you've called us to be. And Lord, in a text like this where we're talking about not just information, but we're, we're talking about real experience and transformation by your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come and do that work? Lord, would you transform us? Lord, I want to pray specifically this morning, maybe for people that have been coming to church and they felt stuck for a long time. Maybe stuck in a mindset. Maybe it's doubt or it's confliction or confusion in their mind. Or, or, or maybe they felt stuck in a sin 
they've just felt trapped, maybe it's temptation or something like that. Holy Spirit, would you come and set people free? Holy Spirit, would you do a work beyond the words that we say, Lord, beyond what we could articulate or understand? Holy Spirit, would you come and do a transforming work in this church here this morning? We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you that you're faithful to hear us when we pray. You're faithful to show up when we ask. And Lord God, your power is at work among us. We love you. Be glorified in our worship and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. And uh, Kyle's here.